0: If you have your Bible this morning, would you open to Hebrews chapter number 2? The book of Hebrews this morning in chapter number 2. <coughs> you know, Scripture teaches us that the message of Jesus and the new covenant that He mediates, this gospel message that we preach, is superior to every other conceivable message that as it concerns the eternal salvation of the soul. Is that what you believe this morning? Amen. That there is no other message, that there is no other way than Jesus Christ alone and Him crucified for sinners. Scripture also reveals to us that this message is to be broadcasted throughout the earth by means of proclamation or means of preaching. We preach the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ so that men and women can hear that glorious gospel and be saved from sin and the wrath to come. Mm -hmm. The Bible tells us that men, if they're to believe, then they have to hear. And how will they hear unless someone goes and preaches the gospel to them? And it's an amazing message and it's an amazing gift from God to men. A message and a gift that He did not have to give to us. We're here today only by grace. If you're saved today, it's only by grace. Hearing the message of the gospel today is only by grace. I'm a grace man this morning. I hope you are too. That's what we preach is grace from God to sinners. Now in chapter 1 of the book of Hebrews, you'll remember that the writer has been highlighting the supremacy of Jesus above all things. He's contrasted Jesus with angels and of course uh, at a deeper level here with the book of Hebrews, he's contrasting the New Covenant with the Old Covenant. And now, as you come to chapter number 2, you find that he has turned a bit of a corner so as, so as to bring out some of the necessary implications of the things that he's been saying in chapter number 1. And so, the implications have to do with those people who have heard the message, those who have made a response to the message. In short, his message here in chapter number 2 is that since Jesus... The message of Jesus is the superior message since the gospel is supreme. If you say that you have actually come to Him, if you consider yourself a Christian this morning, then the message that He's going to tell us in chapter number 2 is that you better hold fast to and not turn away from Jesus. And that's what we're saying over and over in the book of Hebrews. We're literally just driving that into our minds and in our hearts that Jesus is better... Don't fall back. Don't go, on to, don't go back to lesser things. You've come to Jesus. Continue with Jesus. Move on with Jesus to completion. And that's really what the writer is getting at here in chapter number 2. You had better continue. He uses the statement, pay attention. You better continually pay attention to what you have heard. And that for many, many good reasons of which he lays out for us here in this passage. So we started looking at it last week. And so I want us to go back to it now this morning and be reminded of this message that he's communicating to us. So let's read Hebrews chapter number 2 verses 1 through 4. Listen to what he says. You'll notice it starts with a therefore. So in light of everything that he has been saying, he gives us the therefore. Therefore, we must pay closer attention to what we have heard lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, Much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. Now the first thing I want you to see this morning, or really just be reminded of, is that it's been brought to our attention here in the text that we are to pay attention to what we have heard, namely the gospel message that we have heard. That's what he's referring to. That's what he's talking about. This uh, supreme message of Jesus Christ, the superior revelation from God to sinners concerning His Son. And so when I spoke on this passage last time, we really focused in, in verse number 1, on these words, what we have heard. And the topic or the theme of my sermon last time was remembering what we have heard. And so... As we've turned this corner really and come face to face with the exhortive section um, here in chapter number 2, the exhortation that really comes after what he laid down in chapter number 1, we pointed out that there's a first things first kind of a mindset. I mentioned to you last time that there is a call for us really to go back before we go forward. Now, that's the implication here when he speaks of our paying attention to what we have heard. And so uh, if He is pointing out something that we have heard, He's obviously referring to something in the past, a message that came into our hearing at some point. And He's calling us to remember that and to pay, pay attention to that. So in the spirit of that, last week, I asked you to go back in time and ask you to review the movie clip of your life and to find that section of your life where you first heard the message of the Gospel. I told you to go back to that time or that place or that season, that set of experiences that God brought you to 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 bring the gospel to you uh, so that you could really hear the message of the gospel. And I told you to ask yourself some questions. What did you hear? Who did you hear the message from? Uh, I pointed out to you that there's false teachers all around, and so did you hear the true message from those To engage in faithful preaching and teaching of the Word of God? Were the great salvific doctrines opened up to you? Was you given clear views of the Lord Jesus Christ? Did the message come, as Paul would say in Thessalonians, in word only, or was it attended by the power of the Holy Spirit and with full conviction? That's a neglected theme today in much preaching I, I fear. When you go back in time... What's revealed at that place, at that season, at that moment uh, when you heard the message of the gospel? What were the experiences like? Was your response to what you heard? Was it an intellectual response alone or was it effectual? Did it bring about a result in your life? Did you really close with Christ when you go back to that moment to what you have heard? You know, we need to ask ourselves these questions from time to time, don't we? That's what He's calling us to. And we... You know, when the believer engages in examination of his life, he doesn't do that out of morbid introspection. You know, we're not being called to be morbid about all of this. But nevertheless, there there are uh, exhortations in the Word of God to call us back to our experience with the Gospel, to our closing with the Lord Jesus Christ, to think it over. As a matter of fact, do we not, every time we come to the Lord's table, take time? Shouldn't we take time to examine ourselves and think about our life and... Think about our profession of faith in Christ and how we're walking and how we're living before the Lord. And so this is in the Scripture for us to do. Again, not with a morbid introspection where you're walking around like the young girl would with a flower saying, He loves me, He loves me not, He loves me, He loves me not. That's not the idea here. That's a morbid view of what's given to us here in the Scripture. But we are to go back. We are to think and give attention to what we have heard Now that was the issue that I picked up last time. And since you're already familiar with those particular truths, I'm not going to say any more about it. I'll limit my remarks to what I just said to you this morning. So let's move on and consider the next thought for this morning. And I get this from verse number 1, really, and, and really the context even of the book of Hebrews. And that is that we need to wrestle with a scriptural truism this morning. A truism concerning the disposition that we enter into following what we have heard. Now let me say that to you again, because I want you to grab hold of this. We need to wrestle with a scriptural truism. And the truism has to do, or it concerns, the particular disposition that we enter into following what we heard. Following what we heard. Now you'll remember when we talked about what we have heard, This statement of what we heard from the writer of Hebrews' perspective is synonymous with a response, a saving response to the message of the gospel. To hear, in the sense in which it's used here, means to identify with the Lord Jesus Christ. So let me say it this way. The people that the author is writing to, these are not people who have not professed faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. These are not people who have never heard He's writing to a group of people who consider themselves to be followers of Jesus, at least to some degree. These are people who had heard the message of the gospel of the Lord Jesus. That's what the writer means when he's talking about what we have heard. It's not just talking about hearing the message of the gospel and maybe embracing it or maybe not embracing it. His understanding of what we have heard has to do with hearing and receiving it favorably. So he's writing to professing Christians. And the truism that I want to point out to you this morning is this. If you identify as a person who has heard, who really has received one who identifies with the Lord Jesus Christ, one of two things are going to happen to you in your life. Number one, you are either going to persevere in what you heard, or you are going to apostatize from it. Now I'll say it again. If you say that you belong to the Lord Jesus, if you identify as a Christian, you are either going to persevere in what you heard, meaning... You're going to continue. You're going to press on. You're going to continually be following the Lord Jesus Christ. Or on the other hand, you will apostatize. You will show signs of apostatizing from that message. And apostasy simply means to turn away from, to go back, to go backwards. So think about what we've been building on. Last week we talked about remembering what you've heard. Okay, well and good. You say, "All right, I did that exercise. I've thought about it perhaps even all week. I've gone back to to that, to the season, to the time, to where I identified with the Lord Jesus. And now the truism needs to be placed before you that if you say, I do identify with Jesus, then one of these two realities are going to be true in your life. You're either going to persevere and press on and continue in what you've heard, or you're going to go away, turn away from what you've heard. Furthermore, and I'm going to prove this point as we go on, we can say that if the hearing was right from the start, then you will in fact persevere or continue. But if the hearing was flawed, you will ultimately apostatize from it, unless perhaps by the grace of God an opportunity is given to you to truly hear uh, at some point in the future. And so, this brings us back to the point of why it's so important for us to give thought to what we have heard. Amen. Now, follow the point I'm making. You're, you have entered into one of these two dispositions, if you say that you're Christian. Now, it's one thing for me to stand up here and say that this morning, but it's altogether another thing for us to justify it from Scripture, which we must do. Right. Because I want you to see from the Word of God that this is the true Scriptural position now, if, if your fingers are nimble this morning, I want you to do a little Bible drill with me and follow along with me for a few passages. I'll not wear you out with these things, but you can be turning over to Mark chapter 4 if you want to. And while you're turning there, let me read another verse of Scripture to you in the book of Hebrews. It's just one verse. It's why I'm not having you turn there in the moment. But Hebrews chapter number 10, the writer says this, But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. Now do you see the two positions in that verse? There are those who shrink back, who fall away, who apostatize, or there are those who continue on with faith and persevere and press on to the preservation of their soul. Amen. All right. So, so that's a big theme in the book of Hebrews. But let me show you in the Gospel of Mark. Again, I'm just showing you this picture of these two positions. I want you to see them demonstrated. In Mark chapter 4, and you find this in the other Gospels as well, not in John's Gospel, but you'll find it in Matthew and Luke. Here in Mark chapter number 4, you have the famous parable of the soils. Mm-hmm. Now, Mark takes up uh, 20 verses to tell this account or this parable from the Lord Jesus And I'm not going to read it all to you, but I want you to pick up in verse 13 where the Lord Jesus begins to describe the soils and what they represent. Verse 13, He said to them, Do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? The sower sows the Word, and these are the ones along the path where the Word is sown. Now look, when they hear... Satan immediately comes and takes away the Word that is sown in them. These are the ones sown on the rocky ground. The ones who, when they hear the Word, immediately receive it with joy. And they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. Then when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the Word, immediately they fall away. And others are the ones sown among thorns... They are those who hear. Do you you keep hearing that refrain? They hear the Word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the Word, and it proves unfruitful. Now notice in verse 20, it begins with a but. But those that were sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the Word and accept it and bear fruit thirtyfold, sixtyfold and a hundredfold. Now what's the point that I'm making this morning? Now even in the parable of the soils you have these different positions, these different experiences, these different kinds of hearts that the word is sown in, that the gospel is sown in. But at the end of the day there's only two ultimate dispositions about it. There are those who appear to some degree to receive it or hear it, but they fall away. It's stolen from them. It doesn't bear fruit. They don't continue. They don't persevere. And then there's this one at the very end, verse number 20, the good soil that does receive it and they persevere. They press on. They move forward in the faith and they bear fruit in their life. Do you you see that? So again, the point that I'm making when people hear the Word of God, ultimately one of these two dispositions is going to continue. There's either going to be a persevering in hearing the Word or there's going to be apostasy and a turning away from that. And of course, we won't look at all the verses that have to do with it, but the prime example of these two positions in the New Testament has to be a contrast of Peter and Judas. You think of Peter and he had many failings. Peter... I, I, Peter's a man after my own heart. Uh, yeah. Yeah. You know, there's a lot of failure, but also God worked faithfulness in his life. Yeah. And he, sure, he had some temporary setbacks in his life, but because he truly belonged to the Lord, what was his situation? He persevered. He continued on in the faith. Whereas Judas, he was one who appeared to have received the Word and identified with the people of God, but ultimately he turned away from the faith. And so there are those positions demonstrated for us. And we could have picked many other passages in the New Testament that show these two positions of persevering in the faith or turning away from the faith Now let's hone in just one verse of scripture from the Old Testament you can write down or turn there if you want but in Proverbs 5 verse number 18 I think this is the general picture of the genuine believer as they persevere and move on in the faith in Proverbs chapter 5 verse or excuse me 4 chapter 4 verse 18 but the path of the righteous "...is like the light of dawn, which shines brighter and brighter until full day." You see, that's the description of the genuine believer in the Bible, is that there is this uh, continual progression of growth in the light, if you will, or growth in maturity, or growth in fruit bearing. There's many ways that we could talk about it. But there's this steady progress in the life of the genuine believer. That's the nature of what it means to be a true believer." By the way, even in times of great stress and difficulty and temptation and trial and hardship, uh, you still see, even under stress, the believer continues to press forward in the faith. Uh, a classic passage is Psalm 73. You can turn there if you want. I've preached on this passage two or three different times in the life of this church. I think it's so fundamentally important as an encouragement text for genuine believers. But you'll remember Asaph's story. In Psalm 73, verse 1, he makes the declaration, Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, he says, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Here's a man who's a believer in God. I mean, he's a temple worker. And he says, my feet almost stumbled. I almost slipped into a position of apostasy. In verse number 12, he was envious of the wicked. He thought that they had a better lot in life than the believer. They're at ease and they increase in riches, verse 12. And he's contemplating the life of the wicked man. And he says, you know, maybe all in vain I've kept my heart clean. I've been trying to be holy and live a virtuous life before God, but all day long I've been stricken and rebuked every morning. And you see, he's struggling with this. He has envy of the wicked and he's, he's being tempted to do what? To apostatize, to turn away from the faith, to, to, to move out of the direction of one who perseveres in the faith. And he says, you know what? I, I struggled with all of this and God was gracious to me because there came a time when I was trying to think of how to understand this. I went to the sanctuary of God. I went to be around God's people where the normal means of grace take place. And when I went there, I discerned the end of the wicked. God showed me the true reality of the wicked, that they slip to their destruction at any moment. And then by the end of this scenario of the psalmist of Asaph here, when you pick it up in verse 21, look at what he says. Again, in the midst of great temptation and stress and trial, when my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart... I was brutish and ignorant like a beast towards you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward you will receive me to glory. Do you see that? Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire beside you. My flesh and my heart may fail. But God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all your works. See, that's the picture of the believer. The general picture is that the believer's light increases a little at a time grows brighter and brighter and brighter. And even in those times of stress and trial and difficulty where that faith is tested, even though it may feel from time to time that the foot is going to slip, ultimately there is that perseverance, that continuation in following the Lord. Now, on the other side of the equation, we also see in the Bible a picture of what a false believer looks like. We see the picture of apostasy. In Second Peter chapter number 2, if you want to read there with me, beginning in verse number 20, now of course Peter is talking about false teachers here, but these are false teachers who identify as Christian teachers. These aren't people that are outside of the household of faith, at least in the sense of connecting with the people that are around believers they would identify as Christian preachers and teachers. But, but notice how their apostasy is described verse 20 of chapter 2 of Second Peter. For if after they have escaped the defilements of the world through... Now look at this. Through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. They heard the message of the gospel, didn't they? Yeah. It appears as if they were delivered from sin and defilements. If they are again entangled in them and overcome, the last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. What the true proverb says has happened to them. The dog returns to its own vomit and the sow after washing herself returns to wallow in the mire. Now, what am I saying here? This is a truism. All I'm trying to do is point out a truism from Scripture. Something that we observe from the Word of God, and that is that if you say that you are one who have have heard the gospel, then you're either going to persevere in that hearing or you're going to turn away from that hearing. You clearly see this in the Word of God. As a matter of fact, this is the whole point of why the the what the writer is saying in chapter number two. He talks about, look, you must pay closer attention to what you have heard, lest you drift away from it. There's the two positions. You're paying attention and you're moving forward in what you have heard, or you're drifting away and turning away from that which you have heard. You are either moving in the position of perseverance or apostasy for every single person in here this morning who says, I identify with the Lord Jesus Christ. You are demonstrating things in your life that either look like perseverance in the faith or apostasy from the faith. All of us. It's very serious, isn't it? Mm -hmm. It's very serious. It's something that we need to pay great attention to. Now, in the second place... The next thing I want to point out to you this morning is that we need to understand that scripture commands those who identify with the Lord Jesus Christ to persevere in the faith. You see it in verse 1, don't you? Therefore, we must pay we must pay we must pay much closer attention to the things that we have heard. Now, beloved, I want you to listen very carefully to me this morning. I want to come to you this morning as a gentle shepherd that loves his sheep. I don't want you shaking in your boots this morning. I want you to be comforted by the Word of God, but I want you to see the truths that are here. And one of the difficulties with the book of Hebrews is there are some thunderous warnings from this book that can cause a lot of turmoil. And so understand today that I'm trying to shepherd you in a gentle way about these things. And so first, let me speak to you before we talk about the command to persevere in the faith. I want to remind you that Scripture teaches us that genuine believers, now listen to this, it's so comforting, so helpful, Genuine believers do not ultimately fall away from the faith, but they will be preserved unto the end. Amen. Amen. If you are genuinely a Christian today, you will for always be a Christian. Forever and always. You will continually know the Lord. You will continually persevere in the faith. If. You truly know the Lord. The Bible is so very clear. A multitude of texts that we could consider today. I'm going to give you four of them just to encourage your heart. Again, flip. Look at them. Look at the words of Jesus in John chapter number 6. Go to John chapter 6 with me. Just a couple of verses. Encourage yourself for a moment in these great truths. If you're shaken, if you worry about your assurance, if you worry about really knowing the Lord and persevering with the Lord, listen to these texts first. John chapter 6 verse 37. Now this is Jesus speaking. And He said, verse 37, All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Well, there's a multitude of sermons in that verse alone. Now look at this. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. And this is the will of Him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that He has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father. That everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life. And I will raise Him up on the last day. Wow! Amen Amen and amen. amen. This is your Lord. This is your Savior. This is your Shepherd. I lose none. Those who truly belong to me, I lose none. And although you face death, I will raise them up on the last day. If you believe, if you trust, it's the will of my Father to look upon me and believe and have everlasting life, and I'll lose none. Beautiful, beautiful truth. Jump over to John chapter number 10, just a couple of verses there. Same kind of truths. John chapter number 10, verse 27. Jesus was big on this theme. My sheep hear my voice. Verse 27, John 10, 27. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one, no one will snatch them out of my hand. Isn't that amazing? My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. And I and the Father are one. Amen. 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 And hallelujah. Praise the Lord. That if you truly belong to the Lord Jesus, you will forever and always belong to to Jesus. He will hold you fast. We love that song too, by the way. He will hold me fast. Mm He holds us. He hangs on to us. Sometimes when you're, you feel like you're not performing up to par, He holds you fast. Yes. He preserves you. He holds on to your soul. He'll never, ever lose you. Well, the Apostle Paul, go over to Romans chapter 8. You know it. Familiar text indeed. Romans chapter number 8. Let's just read a few verses here. This is such a climactic mountain peak kind of text in the Bible. Romans chapter 8 verse 31 after speaking of justification by faith and the work of God and salvation, what should we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare His own Son but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies, who is to condemn Jesus Christ is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. That sounds strangely familiar to Hebrews, doesn't it? Now look at this, verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, or sword? As it's written, For your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, he says, In all these things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. And then the massive declaration. For I am sure that neither death nor life... Nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation that takes in the whole territory, brothers and sisters. None of those things will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. One more for the cherry on top, if that's okay. How about Jude? Go to Jude, to the end of Jude. The great doxology, a doxology, a confession that all of us should confess constantly to encourage our hearts. Look at this in verse 24 of Jude. Now to Him who is able to keep you from stumbling... What does he mean from stumbling? It means from falling into apostasy. And to present you blameless before the presence of His glory with great joy. Do you see that? There's a start to finish mindset there from the writer. Here you are in time and place and history and he's pointing forward to the future about presenting you before... God, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Why such a doxology? Because He's able to keep you. That's right. He's able to keep you from stumbling. He's able to hold you and to present you blameless before the presence of His glory with great joy. So, be reminded of this great and vital truth that the Bible tells us that genuine believers do not ultimately fall away and that they are preserved until the end. But there's another hand to the story, another side of the story. On the other hand, you also need to be reminded from Scripture that Scripture informs us, listen to this, that believers are expected and exhorted and in fact commanded to persevere in the faith. Right, right. You have all of this talk of preservation and God keeping us and no one snatching us from the Father's hand, but then there's these clear commands that we are to persevere and to press on. Go, go back again. Look in Hebrews, our text. It's the thrust of verse number 1. Therefore, we must. It doesn't say God must. It says we must pay attention. We have a responsibility to pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. The Bible over and over and over calls God's people to persevere and to press on. Think of Joshua in the land, chapter number 22, verse 5. Only be very careful to observe the commandment and the law that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you to love the Lord your God and to walk in all of His ways. And to keep his commandments and to cling to him and to serve him with all of your heart and with all of your soul, do you see that even from the old testament there's this call to hold tightly and to hold fast to God in matthew chapter twenty four in Jesus' all of the discourse sermon, verse number thirteen, Jesus himself said, "But the one who endures to the end will be saved, Amen. the one who endures to the end will Be saved. Again the Apostle Paul, great text in Colossians chapter one, verse twenty one. And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Wow. He has a responsibility, he says, to present us holy and blameless. Jesus, the Lord Jesus, our Redeemer, our Shepherd. the, The one who oversees our soul is going to present us holy and blameless. But then Paul says, if indeed you continue in the faith. And that's something. In the very same passage... You have the sovereign work of God preserving and keeping and holding fast, and yet the command for us as believers to continue in the faith, being stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. And then the Apostle John in the book of Revelation, chapter 14, here is a call, he says, for the endurance of the saints... Those who, the keep, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. Amen. A call for endurance. A call to keep the faith. A call to press on and continue with the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, maybe in looking at those two sides of the coin, you're puzzled this morning. And let me just, if you're not puzzled, let me puzzle you. Okay? A question. Why do we need to persevere? I mean, if Scripture teaches eternal security of the believer, or, you know, as some of the old Baptists would say, if Scripture teaches once saved, always saved. If Scripture teaches the preservation of the Father and the Son, why do I need to be commanded to persevere in the faith? Have you ever wrestled with that conundrum, perhaps? I mean, if, if God does all of this, if I can read a passage like Romans 8 that says nothing will separate me from the love of God and that He's holding me fast and He's got this, right? Why then do I need this call upon my life to persevere and to hold on to the Lord Jesus Christ? Here's the answer in short and then I'll unfold it a little for you. Not only does God appoint the ends of of our salvation, brothers and sisters. But He also appoints the means that accomplish those ends. Not only does God accomplish the ends, not only does He bring us to certain ends, but He also appoints the means that bring about those ends. So let me say it this way too. In the same way that preaching the gospel is the means that God uses to initially bring one to salvation... Preaching calls the believer to persevere as a means that God uses to lead his people on right. in salvation. Right. You follow that? Mm-hmm. Yeah. There is the preaching of the gospel that God uses as means. It is the proclamation of Jesus Christ and him crucified that sinners hear, not just audibly, but with the heart, yeah. that causes them to see the Savior. And then once they've seen the Savior and have latched to the Savior and closed with the Savior, the proclamation continues to be said, hold fast to Jesus as a means to keep you walking in that salvation. Amen. Very important truth. A lot of people really get tied up over this. So it's it's true to say that God certainly does preserve us, but he also uses the means, uses these means to cause us to persevere. Which, by the way, if you're persevering, it's proof of your preservation. That's right. Amen. Did you catch that? It's important. Yeah. He preserves us, but He also uses means to cause us to persevere, which serves as proof of our preservation. Listen, how many of you have heard the statement, once saved, always saved? Yeah, that's a good statement. There's nothing, there's nothing really inherently wrong with the statement. I like the statement so long as you really understand what's meant by the statement. But perhaps an amended statement would be better. Once saved, always following Jesus. Amen. Amen. And if you're always following Jesus, you can be sure that you're saved. You see? It's a shade of meaning there that needs to be brought in to that truth. Once saved, always following Jesus. And if you are one who is exhorted to keep following Jesus again, and you do, it's proof positive that somewhere along the line you were in fact saved. Mm -hmm. The point I'm making is that God certainly does preserve us, but He motivates us to persevere. And He does that in many ways, by the way. Let me camp here for just a minute. God has many, uh, many tools in His tool bag. Every tool in God's toolbox isn't just a hammer. That's right. Okay. Amen. 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 That's right. You ever known any uh, carpenters or tradesmen that it seemed like the only tool that they knew how to use was a hammer? God has many tools. He has many methods. He has many things that He does in our life to cause us to press on. Have you ever had a? Time in your life, maybe where you were struggling, and you had many doubts and fears and apprehensions, and just tr- you were troubled in mind, troubled in soul, and maybe you remembered or a text of scripture, or came to a service one day where the sweetness of God was proclaimed. Amen. Amen. And all of these wonderful things about God's salvation. Maybe, maybe even today, like even reading a text like Romans eight. And you're reminded of the kindness and the love of God and just how sweet He is. Sometimes God reminds you of His fatherly care and sweetness as a means to pull you up out of the dumps to cause you to keep pressing on. That's a wonderful thing. He reminds you of the communion that you have with Him. Because see, as we've said so many times, when you were saved, you became a child of God and now you relate to God not as a criminal to a judge, but a child to a father. And God reminds you and continues to teach and to train you elements of His fatherly care and, and watchfulness of, of your soul. Sometimes we're tricked to believe lies about God that cause us to view Him not so much as Father, but in other lights that we shouldn't be viewing Him in. Sometimes the enemy tricks you to think of God like you thought about Him before you were a Christian when you thought of Him only as a judge over your life. And that's a lie. And the only way to overcome that is you have to preach the truth to yourself from the Word of God about the fatherly aspects of God and believe those things and act on those things because if you don't, you'll be, you'll be living your Christian life under a cloud all the time. Amen. So sometimes God, He comes to us because we're in a low place and we're maybe a little bit stagnant or maybe we're drifting as the text is going to talk about here in verse number 1. And God, to motivate you remind you of His sweetness and the, and the tender wonderfulness of the relationship with Him. Amen. That's always a sweet time, isn't it? Amen. But there's other ways too. Sometimes God, sometimes God motivates us to press on by exerting gentle pressure upon us when we're lazy. Amen. Laziness is a massive character flaw, by the way. It's a horrible character flaw. Yeah. The book of Proverbs talks all about laziness. Parents... I would encourage you and exhort you this morning to make sure that one of the lessons that you teach your children is to not develop laziness as it concerns the way they live their life. Because laziness is a sign of bad character. You want to encourage a disciplined life and uh, fortitude and pressing forward and all of those things. Discipline is a horrible or laziness is a horrible thing. You need to be very very careful about that. And all of us in our fallen condition tend to laziness. It's a part of the curse, isn't it? And if you Give in to laziness, then thorns and thistles are going to grow. You've got to beat back the curse. And you don't beat back the curse by laziness. You beat back the curse by discipline, being disciplined and having fortitude. Sometimes in our Christian life, we get lazy. We stop paying attention to the Word, maybe. Maybe we get in the routine of coming Sunday after Sunday and listening to the ministry of the Word of the church and because it's so routine and so normal, maybe we don't get the same kind of attention to it that we should. And so sometimes God will do certain things in your life to gently poke you and prod you to wake you up to your laziness so that you'll get back in the groove of what you need to be doing as you walk with the Lord. Now, again, if you've walked with the Lord any length of time at all, you know that to be the case, don't you? Sometimes it's the sweetness that draws us back. Sometimes it's the gentle pressure that He puts upon us. Isn't that what you do as parents with your kids, by the way? You know, you don't just bring the hammer to bear on them right immediately. You, you speak to them and you point out things that they need to do. You give gentle pressure and you, you you pat the shoulder. But but if they don't comply, then you have to start bearing down a little bit harder on the shoulder, don't you? Yeah. And so this is what God does as well. God will use gentle pressure when we're lazy. Sometimes God motivates us with sharp pricks as well. Maybe He'll bring some difficulty into your life, again, to wake you up because the sweetness of the relationship hasn't drawn you back. The gentle pressure hasn't drawn you back. And then so God uses, as we've talked about before, the bit and the bridle, so to speak. And so as to steer you and pull you to where you need to go because... One way or the other, God is going to glorify you. He is going to make you more like His Son, whether He does that gently or by the bit and the bridle. One way or another, you will be conformed to the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. But oh, my friend, the pricks are far more painful than just thinking about the sweetness of the relationship and being drawn by the honey of the relationship with God. And then, another thing that God does. And it's what we find here in the book of Hebrews. Is He motivates us to press on with warnings. Yeah. Warnings that have to do with fear. He tells us about terrible things that could happen to our soul. And so it's fear. We're motivated sometimes. And again, that's what's being employed here in the book of Hebrews. So, you got to ask the question, how then do the warning passages of Hebrews work in the life of the believer to cause them to persevere? That's a good question to wrestle with. Okay, because you're going to run across other warning passages in Hebrews. Because the knowledge of the supremacy of Christ is so important that you better be warned not to turn away from that. You need to understand. Let me just show you. Look right here. We're going to cover this later on. But look here in verse 2 and 3 of Hebrews. Just listen to the language For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such great salvation? Do you you see that as a warning? I mean, we're talking about the language of destruction and retribution here. This is a fearful thing. So how do the warning passages work in the life of a Christian? Here's how it happens. If I'm a Christian and I am told that by failing to persevere it will jeopardize my soul and if it removes some of the ground of my certainty and my assurance then I'll be motivated to persevere. Amen. If you walk over to the cliff of the Grand Canyon and there's a railing there and a sign that says don't get close to to the cliff, to the edge. That's a warning, isn't it? And it's to make you think what could happen to you if you went over the cliff. Just picture it in your mind. Imagine jumping off the Grand Canyon to the bottom of the canyon. So the warning sign on the railing is a means that's meant to keep you away from the cliff. amen. Fear. That's what God does in the warning passages. See, if you walk away from what you've heard in a final sense, what would be revealed is that you were lost all along. That's right. Yeah. Amen. Saved people, genuinely saved people. They receive a message like that and our attitude is, the genuine believer's attitude is... I don't want to be an apostate. Amen. Right. Right. I don't want to turn away Amen. from the Lord. Listen, if you're worried about being an apostate here today, chances are you're not an apostate. Amen. <laughs> yeah. Amen. Amen. If you're not worried about being an apostate, you should probably be worried some this morning. Wow. Amen. The warning is meant to keep you from apostasy. And so when that happens... You say, I don't want to be an apostate. The message that came in the form of a warning served the end of keeping you following after the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what you have here in our text. Right. So now as a Christian, you go back and you read, therefore we must pay closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. I don't want to drift away from it! Amen. So I'm going to pay attention to it. is right? Isn't that what stirs in your heart as a believer? Let me give you one other thing too. Another, maybe, insight to the soul that I think would be helpful. I think about this a lot of time when I counsel people who are professing Christians, but yet red flags come into my mind about that person's profession. Here's another reason why we need to persevere there are some professing Christians who have what I like to call an idle faith. Yeah. What is something that's idle? means it's not moving. It's not going anywhere. It's stationary. It stays in one particular place. And anytime you come across a professing believer that has an idle faith, listen to me closely, it is usually a sign of intellectual faith alone. That's it. Amen. Now, intellectual faith alone is not a saving faith. Alright? This is a category of professing believer that you have to understand that's very, very important. Intellectual faith is a faith that's idle, but because it was demonstrated at a point in time, it stays in the past. This is why there are so many professing Christians when they're concerned about the salvation of their soul, that the only thing that they do is revisit the time and the place in which they made their profession in the past. That's, it. That's all they do. That's as far as it goes. And if they can look in the cover of their Bible and see the date that they wrote down on such and such a date, I walked the aisle, I prayed a prayer, I did my business with God, that Time in the past becomes the grounds for which they assure themselves that they are a Christian. Yeah, that's right, that's right. And that's deadly. Amen. That's right. Because true, genuine faith is effectual. That's right. It, it, it's, it's living. You see, this is what makes a decisionistic gospel so deadly. That's right. Decisionistic gospel calls for men just to make intellectual assent to the gospel alone. That's right that 's so dangerous, yeah, it is so very, very dangerous, because when you make it about the intellect alone, it ignores the necessity of the new birth, and the new birth produces not idle but active faith Amen. you see it 's being born again that then produces faith faith doesn 't come before being born again, born again comes before faith it 's the new birth of life. Starting up in that person that brings about the effect of repentance and faith, which brings conversion, and then Amen. following the Lord Jesus. Amen. Amen. You follow that? Amen. It's so very, very important. So listen, calls to persevere then has a way of shaking those professors who only have an idle intellectual faith out of their damning stupor. Yeah, that's good. So important. Christianity, again, it's active because genuine faith is effectual. It's alive. Maybe an illustration will help. Genuine faith is like starting the engine of a lawnmower that never runs out of gas. You start the engine and it just keeps on running. It never stops running. That motor just keeps on going and going and going and going and going. Intellectual faith... It agrees that there is an engine. It agrees even that that engine can run, but it never gets cranked up but imagines that it is. (laughs) That's That's intellectual faith. That's non effectual faith. And what happens to this person, and this is what is so dangerous among churchmen, is that their apostasy, because they will apostatize because they don't have genuine faith. Their apostasy is an unperceived apostasy because intellectual faith alone produces deception. This is why in Matthew 7 when these people say, Lord, Lord, and you remember what Jesus says to them, right? Depart from me because I never knew you. The scary thing or the... Difficulty about that is that these people didn't realize that they weren't those who belonged to Jesus. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Because their apostasy was unperceived. They didn't realize it. And you remember the grounds by which Jesus based the evidence of their salvation? Remember? You only gave lip service to the will of the Father, but you didn't do the will of the Father. And you didn't do the will of the Father because you didn't have active faith. You didn't have real faith. Real faith perseveres. Real faith presses on. Real faith moves forward. Real faith produces fruit. Real faith produces things. It's like a healthy growing tree that just keeps moving up. The Proverbs text that I gave you the light shines brighter and brighter and brighter until noonday. It's always something is always happening in the heart and in the life of the genuine believer because you've been given the new birth that produces all of these different things. You see, flawed faith will always be past tense. That's right. Intellectual faith will always be past tense. Effectual faith is active in the present and it calls to perseverance. And those calls to perseverance, by the way, reveal what you have. Because if you're a professor, you're either going to persevere or you're going to apostatize. You're going one direction or the other. And so this is another reason as to why we're called to persevere. It will reveal. It will demonstrate the kind of faith that you say that you have, and remember what I told you last week: you will stand before God with whatever salvation you say that you have. All right. amen. That's right. So you have to make sure that it's the real thing. And if the warnings of Scripture and the calls to persevere cause you to persevere, then rejoice, brothers and sisters, amen. because God has done something real in your life. Now, there's much more to say. That's always what the preacher says right when he runs out of things to say. <laughs> There's more to say, though, on this. There really is. I, I had debated bringing out a couple other points this week in the sermon, but I decided not to because I want to continue to unfold next week. What does, what does perseverance look like? And what are causes of apostasy? That's important to discuss, and it requires a, a full sermon on those things. So let me just conclude with a few final thoughts. This morning, number one, just like we began last week, I just encourage you one more time to go back to what you heard. Amen. Okay, It is important. Go back to that time, that place, that season. Go back and look at your experience. In the second place, if you identify with Christ, mark it down that your life is demonstrating either patterns of perseverance or patterns of apostasy, and you need to ask which of the two it is. Amen. In the third place, You need to wake up to Scripture's call upon you as well as your responsibility to persevere in your following of the Lord Jesus. I exhort you today, if you say you're a Christian, persevere. Continue going after the Lord Jesus. I use the words of the writer of Hebrews. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to the things that we've heard. You've heard it. You've embraced it. You've received it. I keep paying attention to it. Continue to press on. Let me give you three E words. Go back and look at your experience. Right now in the present, look at the evidence and think towards the future with endurance. There's the pattern. That's how you need to think about what's going on here in the passage. And lastly, again, for those of you who are believers, I I so want you to walk away encouraged today. That's the point of all of this. I'm not trying with the book of Hebrews to bring you to a place of despair. And it can do that. And there's preachers I've heard who have done that with the preaching of these kinds of warning texts. I perhaps have done it myself from time to time. But the point today is that if you're a genuine believer, these truths are meant to bring you to a place of hope genuine hope, genuine confidence, genuine assurance. Don't you remember from the beginning of our study and the times throughout the study how many times I've told you that when we're finished I want your assurance to be greater and stronger and to new heights that it's never been before. But the only way that you get there is if you go through some of the deep anguish of the soul through these truths. You have to pour yourself through these different truths before you come to that place. And so I want you to walk away today with joy. And so as it concerns this doctrine of perseverance of the saints that we've come face-to-face with in Hebrews, I want you to be encouraged with this confessional statement about this doctrine. I went back this week and looked in some confessions, Baptist confessions, and I really like this particular one. It's point number 13 in the abstract of principles from 1858. This is Southern Seminary's doctrinal confession. Some of our Baptist forebearers wrote these things down. They're so very helpful. And I think this is so encouraging. Listen to this, and I'll close with this. Those whom God hath accepted in the Beloved and sanctified by His Spirit will never totally nor finally fall away from the state of grace, but shall certainly persevere to the end. And... Though they may fall through neglect and temptation into sin, whereby they grieve the Spirit, impair their graces and their comforts, bring reproach on the church and temporal judgment on themselves, yet they shall be renewed again unto repentance and be kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation. Amen. Brothers and sisters, may we now and always pay Much closer attention to what we have heard. Father, we thank You for these clear words of instruction from Your Holy Word today. And Lord, I pray the truths in the passage today haven't brought anyone to despair, but rather to a position of hope and confidence and comfort. Lord, that they're in a state of grace. Lord, I pray that You would work these things in all of our souls. Lord, these are common things to every believer that we have to wrestle with and struggle with. But Lord, how profitable. What a wonderful exercise for us to wrestle with our soul and to not go back just in the past somewhere, but think about what's going on right now. And Lord, that we would examine and that we would think about our love for the Lord Jesus and our following hard after Him and that we would keep up the endurance as we run the race ready to make it to the end of the the, the prize, to the goal, to the finish line. So Lord, help us to not be lazy. Help us to be watchful. Help us to pay close attention to the things that we've heard and to persevere. And Father, we do praise You and we thank You today for these other great texts on the other side that teach Your wonderful preservation of Your children. You are such a loving Father. And Lord, if I could lose my salvation, I know I would. Mm -hmm. But thank God that it doesn't depend upon me. But it depends upon the Lord Jesus who shed His blood. And He is the only offering, Lord, that you accept. And if we find ourselves under the blood, the precious blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, we are safe and sound for now and throughout all of eternity. And I pray today that you would subjectively quicken that truth to your people today to give them joy and gladness in the Lord. And with believing and and happiness and joy, they would walk out today Lord, with their, with their eyes upon You, continually persevering and following hard after Jesus. Amen. We love You today and are so thankful for Your grace. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen.